0: Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you join us this morning. We're in a series on the book of Daniel that we're calling How to Stand Out When You Don't Fit In. And thus far, we've been looking at this group of people, this community, that have been removed from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. So they are in exile, at least the best and the brightest are still at this point. They're now in captivity. They are prisoners of war. And they were taken because they were the best and the brightest, They were taken because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wanted to Babylonianize them. He wanted to somehow make their thinking and passions and priorities more Babylonian, and then either he could have them serve in Babylon or maybe send them back to Jerusalem, but going back as leaders that are now influenced by Babylon and propagating a whole Babylonian philosophy and way of living. Well, this morning we come to Daniel chapter 3, a pretty familiar chapter. It's all about Daniel's three friends and the furnace. So my guess is some of you kind of heard that story before. We're going to read most of that in a few minutes, but let me just tell you right up front. This is clearly a worst case scenario. And so I was thinking uh, years ago, there was a book that was published called The Worst Case Scenario Handbook. True book. Millions and millions of copies have been sold. So I'm back and kind of refresh myself. And Worst case scenarios, how to handle them. So I thought I would just mention a couple in case you ever run into these worst case scenarios. How do you escape from quicksand? That's kind of a worst case scenario. If you're going down, you may die. Well, how do you get out? I'm not gonna tell you, you gotta buy the book. How do you jump out of a building on fire into a dumpster and survive? You can read about how to do that. There's one chapter that has graphic detail about how to give someone an emergency tracheotomy with a penknife and a ballpoint pen. I read that chapter carefully, so if you're in need this morning, come on up. I can help you out. I'll probably pass out, but i can at least get it started. Then there was another chapter on what to do if you face an angry mountain lion. So I thought I would kind of get your help on this one. So uh, let me give you a couple choices. If you face an angry mountain lion, what should you do? Run? Make yourself big? Kind of take your sweater, jacket, raise it up high? Sing a happy song to the mountain lion hoping his anger will disappear, or just tremble and cry. Uh, well, actually the right answer is, take off your sweater jacket, make it hard, because then you look even bigger and you may scare the mountain lion away. Well, that raises another question. What do you do if you're facing an angry mountain lion and you're with a little child? What should you do? Run? If you can't outrun the mountain lion, maybe you cannot run the kid, that'll work well, right? Um, do you uh, play dead? Both of you, lay down, lay down, be still. Do you uh, take off your jacket and look big? Well, actually, the right answer is again, lift the child up, make yourselves look big, and the bigger you look, the more frightened the mountain lion might be. Now, some of those may appear humorous, they're actually true stories, the author says, but here's the reality and the scary part. If you haven't yet faced worst case scenarios, you will. Are you prepared? Have you thought through what to do? What will that look like? We may not know the details, but are we preparing in order to do that? Well, let me tell you about the worst case scenario in Daniel chapter three. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are in Babylon and here's the context. So here's the context you have to know. There are three messages that all the captives and the people in Babylon, the people from Israel are hearing. Here are the three messages. Nebuchadnezzar's message is assimilate, become Babylonian. So get educated in the Babylonian philosophies, live out the Babylonian priorities, worship the Babylonian gods, assimilate. That's Nebuchadnezzar's message. And that's what chapter one's all about. How do you get these people assimilated? The false prophets, you can check it out in Jeremiah 28, the false prophets message is separate and isolate. Build, if not physical, Build walls around you. Keep all the Babylonian influences out. Don't have anything to do with the filthy, creepy Babylonians. You live differently. You separate. You isolate. You live on the inside. That was the false prophet's message. God's message was don't assimilate and don't separate. Engage. Remain faithful to the priorities and values of God, but engage your community. And if you wanna read that, you can go back and read it. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago in Jeremiah 29 when Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles and says, settle down, build homes, plant gardens, marry and allow your children to marry and pray for the prosperity of that city because if they prosper, you too will prosper. So it's not assimilate and it's not separate, it's faithfully engage. Well, which voice do you think they're gonna listen to? How's that going to go down? Kind of the same voices today we hear, right? Same voices today. What are we going to listen to? But the immediate context or setting for Daniel 3 is Daniel 2. Notice how profound that is? Like Daniel 3 follows Daniel 2. And Carlos walked us through Daniel 2 last week. Daniel chapter 2 is all about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And uh, I don't have the guts that Carlos has, so I will not tell you any about my wife's dreams. (laughs) Just trust me on that one. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's kind of a weird dream. The dream is of a big statue, remember? And the statue is a gold head and silver chest and bronze belly and iron legs and clay feet. That's the picture. And then Daniel comes in and very courageously interprets the dream. And he says, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Your kingdom is the head of gold. But your kingdom will be succeeded by another. And that kingdom will be succeeded by another. And that kingdom will be succeeded by another. And that kingdom will be succeeded by another until one day God sends his king and that kingdom will last forever. Well, is so kind of overwhelmed by the dream and Daniel's interpretation. This is what he says at the end of, the, at the end of Daniel chapter two. Look at this. The king, Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar, he gets it. In fact, as you read through the book, Nebuchadnezzar gets it, doesn't get it, gets it, doesn't get it. That's kind of his story. Does that sound familiar? Get it, don't get it, get it, don't get it. Well, he gets it at the end of chapter 2. What we're going to see in chapter 3, he doesn't get it. But lest you think he doesn't get it like in breakneck speed, chapter three does not immediately follow chapter two chronologically. I mean, chronologically they follow, but there's a big gap in between. In fact, many scholars believe there's maybe two decades in between chapter two and three. So at the end of chapter two, he gets it. And time rolls by, maybe it's a few years, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 12 years, maybe it's 18 years, maybe it's 20 years. In chapter three, that's when he responds. He's had 18, 20 years to think about. What's he gonna do? Does he remember the dream? Does he remember that Daniel's God is the Lord of all and the King of kings? And uh, well, let's read his response. If you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter three. If you use a phone, tablet, whatever you got, kind of pull it out. And I'll read out on 20-some verses of chapter 3. I'll warn you right up front, there's a fair bit of repetition. But you have to remember, uh, repetition often points us in the right direction to the theme. So I'm sorry for all the repetition, but maybe I'm not. God decided to repeat himself. So here we go in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials, they assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, zither, flute, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You bet they did. At that time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music... They must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage... Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And that's a pretty amazing story. Some of you know it. Some of you may have heard it for the first time. Let's kind of walk through it and see if there are some helpful hints that we can glean from this worst-case scenario when we face a worst-case scenario. Well, we've already looked at the setting, but beyond the setting, what is Nebuchadnezzar's response? So think back to chapter two. God gives him this dream. Nebuchadnezzar um, goes to Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream. And at the end of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar responds, Daniel, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Everybody should worship him. What's his response in chapter three? Well, here it is. Look, Look at verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Do you notice any differences between the image that he saw in chapter two and the image that he built in chapter three? Yeah, the image in chapter two had different kinds of metals, that God was showing him the succession of kingdoms. In chapter three, Daniel builds a statue, all of gold. I think it kind of goes like this. Chapter two gives God's plan for history. One kingdom will take over another and be taken over by another and be taken over by another until eventually God sends his king and that kingdom is eternal. In a sense, chapter three finds Nebuchadnezzar saying, I don't like God's plan." I don't like that whole next kingdom, next kingdom, next kingdom. Thumb. How about if my kingdom, the kingdom of gold, lasts forever? I'm going to build a statue which represents human history, and it's going to be old gold, all gold. From the head to the feet, it's all gold, and my kingdom is the golden kingdom. My kingdom will last forever. I'll let you know a little secret. Uh, when you kind of understand what God's going to do, you probably don't want to object to that and kind of propose your plan in place of his plan because God usually wins those debates. But in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gives his response. He wants his kingdom to last forever. He wants what he's doing to last forever. He doesn't like the whole succession of kingdoms thing. He wants his kingdom in Babylon to last forever and ever and ever rather than God's plan. Um, that's what the statue means. The statue is an image of power and control. The statue is impressive, but it's also an image of peace. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar through his reign was capturing all these other empires and all these other kingdoms, and they all worshiped other gods and had different priorities. And so Nebuchadnezzar in a sense is saying, you can keep all your other gods, you can worship whatever you want, but we will all worship my image. We will all be committed to the eternal view of Babylon and to me as king. You can believe whatever you want as long as we all believe this. Does that sound familiar? Believe whatever you want, except you also have to believe this. It's a peaceful of image and what he's asking the people to do. It's a powerful image and desire what he wants. How does that work out? Nebuchadnezzar's response to God's plan of history. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decide that they're not going to bow down. And that raises a, a couple of questions. One of them's in the text, and I'm going to make another. I'll, I'll make another. Here's, a, here's the first question. It's a Question that Nebuchadnezzar asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego What God will rescue you from my hand? Now, for those of you that are uh, English students or English wannabe students, let me tell you that is a rhetorical question. When you ask a rhetorical question, you are not looking for information. He's not saying, Are there any gods out there that could really kind of. He's not asking for information, he's making a point. For example, Parents, have you ever said this to your kids? Do you want a timeout? That's not really an honest question. Well, let me think. I can play video games, hang out with my friends, or get it. i I'll choose the timeout. That's not an honest... You're not asking for... It's a rhetorical question. Sometimes you say, do you want to get hit by a car? That's not like an honest question. You want to play in the street and get hit by a car, or would you rather stay in the house play in the yard? Like, what your choice? What do you want to do? It's a rhetorical... You're making a point. If you play in the street, you may get hurt. If you keep doing what you're doing, I'm going to impose um, yeah, punishment and you're going to get a time out. You're, you're not asking for information, you're making a point. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's not asking for information, he's making a point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's just get this straight. I hold your fate in my hand. So think very carefully here. If you don't bow down, I'm going to have you killed, and no one can save you. That's the point. That's a rhetorical question Nebuchadnezzar asks. Um, here's a question I want to ask you all. Now I kind of had to wrestle with this a couple of days this week, so I'm going to have you wrestle with it. Here's this question. When you read through that story, as you know, I just read it to you, or when you think about it, what characters do you most identify with. Now here's my hunch, like we're in church. So you all say, I identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're competing voices in my culture, at my workplace, I am called to bow down and worship the bottom line. I'm called to do, break the rules and color outside the lines for the sake of the success of the team and at the wishes of Micah. But I stand against that onslaught. I stand in the power of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I am like them, standing against the voices, and, for, voice, forces and voices in our culture. Yeah, right. Here's the realization I had to come to. I resemble Nebuchadnezzar a whole lot more than I resemble Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I suspect you do too. We're kingdom builders, right? We take a fair bit of our energy, our time, our resource, our skills, our talent, our wherewithal, and we set out building our little kingdoms. We're gonna build our retirement so we can retire in great comfort. I'm gonna build a killer resume so every, every corporation I know of will want me to work. I'm gonna build the best team in the company. I'm gonna work for the best marriage in our church. I'm gonna have the best kids. They're gonna beat all their friends at soccer and little league and football. I'm going, we're gonna build our little kingdom. If the truth be told, I resemble Nebuchadnezzar a whole lot more than I resemble Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego. Now notice, if we plug ourselves in, just for a reading's sake, into the Nebuchadnezzar position, notice what happens. The obedient servants come and live perfectly and obediently before me. Boy, there's a clear line of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego signpost pointing to Jesus. Jesus shows up and lives a perfectly obedient life, going into the fire, being rescued by God. But I can experience having my eyes open, coming to my senses, and experience some of the freedom and deliverance that the obedient one brought me. Funny when you read yourself into different characters how the storyline changes a little bit. Now, I'm not saying, don't live like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, but the only way that we can live like them is by living like the one to whom they point. They're pointing to the perfectly obedient one who comes and doesn't just risk his life, gives his life so we can experience the freedom and the joy that comes from that. Questions. Who do you most resemble or identify with in the chapter? Answer carefully and allow the rest of the Bible to help you. But we do learn a lot about faith from the three guys. And I think what we learn about faith needs to be learned in our day, maybe better than any day in history. Here's what what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. So Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down and worship the image. So here's what they say. Notice they're respectful. King Nebuchadnezzar, we really don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know we're not going to serve your gods. And we're not bowing down to that statue. Can I give you the two foci of their answer, and we need both of them. There's not one center in a circle. There are two foci in an ellipse. Here it is. Our God is able. Our God may be willing. See? But we live in a world where one of those foci often gets eliminated, right? We live in a world in which a lot of people say, oh, God can't do that. You really believe that there's a God that can kind of talk and everything comes into being? You believe there's a God that can reach down and really make a difference in people? God can't do all that stuff. And there are lots of other people. You can sometimes see them on TV. They tell God what he must do. If you live like this, God must answer your prayer. If you just have enough faith or you have the pure faith, if the quality of your faith and the quantity of your faith is as God wants, you can tell God what to do. What? What? Be careful of both ends of the continuum. God can't or God must. They are faulty extremes. Biblical faith is not at either of the ends. What do the three friends say? God is able. He can do it. He may be willing. Notice, their faith is not in the outcome. Their faith is in the one who determines the outcome. We often somehow picture faith as being more in the outcome. No, faith is in the one who controls it. I don't know what the best outcome should be. And let's be honest, you don't either. God is able. He may be willing. We're not sure what the destination is. Trust the one who has all the wisdom and all the power to bring it out. Our God is able. He may be willing. That's the biblical way of understanding faith. And the three guys help us understand it well. Two foci, not just one. He is able. He may be willing. But regardless, we will not disobey what he says. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's command is a clear infraction of one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down and worship images. What's Nebuchadnezzar say? Bow down and worship my image. The three guys say, no thanks. We want to respect you. Our God's able, maybe willing, but one thing's for sure we're not bowing down. So we'll do what we got to do, you do what you got to do. Helpful message. Well, then there's uh, the rescue. And it's pretty amazing. I'll just give you one verse. You, we read the story together. Here's the verse Nebuchadnezzar looks in the furnace. He says, Huh, have I, uh, like, I didn't skip out. Of elementary school arithmetic, but something's up here. I see four men in the furnace. I thought we threw three in. Huh. Who's the fourth guy? Well, that's kind of confounded scholars and commentators for, you know, centuries, right? Who's the fourth guy? Well, here's the real answer. We're not told. We're not told. You know, some people say, oh, it's a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. Well, that could be, but we're not told. Is it just an angel kind of bringing God's presence and God's provision and God's protection? We're not told. Somehow it's a, the word angel just means messenger. Clearly there's a message, a message sent to Nebuchadnezzar, a message sent to the three guys. And the message is really important. The message is for us. And here's the message. Our God is able to deliver us out of circumstances that are beyond our ability to even comprehend and understand. Our God is able to deliver. That's what it says. Let me uh, tease out a couple uh, things that kind of go along with that. In the Bible, fire is often used to picture two things. Not one, but two things. Judgment and refinement. Two things are always... In, when fire comes up, it's either or, it's both, judgment and refinement. So if this is just an angel, or if this is the angel of God, whatever, whoever this guy is, he's pointing out a message. And here's the message, if you know the rest of the Bible, here's what it says. Jesus took our ultimate furnace for us. That's the message. Therefore, for all followers of Jesus, there is nothing of the judgment furnace left for us. Jesus took it up. Our two songs we sang this morning, being that, that's what he sang. Jesus takes all the judgment of the furnace for us and he promises to go with us through all the furnaces of refinement from here to home. That's the twofold message. Jesus takes all the furnace of judgment and promises to be with us through all the furnaces of Of refinement. I had a couple of weird thoughts this week, so I thought I'd share them with you so I won't be weird alone. My uh, first thought was, do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ever got together on like the furnace anniversary in the future, right? You ever think they'd get together, and, you know, and depending on your, did they meet at a bar and kind of talk about it? Did they go to their biblical small group and talk? Where, where did they go? But they ever get together? My guess, in my way of thinking, they saved these old clothes. And even though they didn't smell a fire, and by now, you know, the moss had eaten them, it's kind of old, and they kept them from their wives because their wives would throw them out. But they say, right, guys, you have that old high school sweatshirt, that old college jacket, you have it. And my guess is these three guys, once a year on the furnace anniversary, they would pull out their old funky clothes and they'd gather together and they would talk about the furnace. And they never shared regrets. It's kind of weird, right? Never would. Remember, remember we went in and it was so hot, the ropes burned off. And we were there, remember we were talking to God's messenger? And boy, remember what he said? We're not telling anybody, but remember what he said? And boy, he takes all of our judgment and he goes with this to refine. Isn't that great? And then my second <laughs> weird thought was, look, I know that God is omniscient and God is omnipotent and he doesn't need an iPhone to remind him of appointments. I know that. Been in my weird thinking, God has an iPhone. Maybe an iPhone 11, the new one. And you ever notice with that like with like outlook, you can set it so you get a 30, 30 minute or a 15-minute reminder? And so in my crazy thinking, God on his iPhone 11 gets a reminder. Huh. Meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Huh. What would have happened if they never showed? All they had to do was say the word, bend the knee, and the nightmare would have been over. You ever get too close to the fire pit? I mean, it's hot, right? I mean, this is a fire built for, you know, baking bricks. This sucker's hot. And all they have to do is bow the knee, say the word, the nightmare's over. Just imagine they caved. God shows up in the furnace and they don't show. I wonder uh, how many reminders God's gotten and I never showed. I caved. I said the word, I made the decision, I did something, I, I took the easy way and God was waiting in the furnace of refinement and I, I didn't show. Well, we can't go back and relive history. But here's a scary thought. If God, Jesus has taken all of our furnaces of judgment gone forever, He loves us so much, He's planned some furnaces of refinement to purify our faith and our relationships, our understanding, all that stuff. That means there are some furnaces of refinement in your future and mine. Sorry. Are you going to show? Or are you going to cave? You want to say the word and make the nightmare go away? Do You want to bow the knee, not speak up? You know what I'm saying. Not show. What do you say we make the courageous decision to show up? What do you say? If Jesus has taken the ultimate furnace of judgment, All the other furnaces can do is refine us and he promises to go through those furnaces with us. The wisest thing we can do is keep the appointments, not cave. Yeah, it'll be tough. Fires are hot. God knows what he's doing. He's taken all of our judgment. He now wants to refine. He set some appointments. What do you say we keep them? Father, we give you thanks that he sent Jesus to take our ultimate furnace. And so therefore, there is not one flame of judgment left for us. He bore it all. But there's still a lot of dross and impurity that has to kind of be dealt with. And so you have planned furnaces of refinement to clean us up. Even though it's hard to say thank you for that. Help us to show up knowing you'll meet us there and you'll see us through, purer and cleaner on the other side. We pray in Jesus' name.